Hey guys, how are you? Good, good afternoon. Jesus, thank you so much that we get to come together and praise you, or that we get to be called your people, adopted into your family, called your heirs, your sons and daughters, not because of the works that we did or because we said the right things, but because you so love the world that you gave your life to purchase us that while we were yet sinners, you died for us. And so Jesus, I pray that as your redeemed people, <clears throat> as we read your word tonight, that you would speak to us, that um, as we hear about what Paul did with the Corinthians, that it would inspire us in how we navigate through life and deal with hardship and talk to neighbors and our families. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. So, excuse me. Burgers were rad tonight, right? <laughs> um, I, 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 there's a school where my son goes, and I was driving to go pick him up on Friday. And when I got there, there was one of our volunteers whose son goes there was in the, the parking lot. So I start talking with her. We're telling stories, and I'm talking. And one of my friends I've known since I was in high school her son also goes to that school. So she goes inside to pick up her son. She sees me, I wave, and I'm continuing my conversation. She goes inside, and the, the two helpers are in there, and they're kind of whispering, almost like nervous to one another. And she goes, oh, I'm just here to pick up my kid. And they go, is that man out there yelling at that woman? And she goes, oh, no, that's just Justin. And they go, oh, it's just Justin. Because I have one volume. What I think what I'm saying is very important. And so I'm gonna make sure everyone else thinks it's important and I'm gonna be very loud. And I, that just was the environment I was raised in. So we even in the office, we had to put a light up in the hallway. And if the light is red, Justin is not allowed to talk in the hallway because it's gonna disrupt things going on in other rooms, right? So for me, it, it, hey, this is really important. You gotta know it. I'm really, I'm just loud. That's how I do. That's just how I talk. That's how I communicate. That's how I get my point across. If you have people who are on social media or people who are trying to sell you their program or their methods or their ideas and they're advertising online or on TV, how do they make sure you and I know what they're doing is important? Well, they'll often show you, look at all the money I've made or look at how famous I've gotten or look at all of the, the women I get to hang around with or all the men, I don't know whatever they're doing. Look at how important my life is. Look at how all the cool things I have. Maybe if you do what I'm doing, you'll be able to have access to all of these things too. It reminds me of, uh, I don't know if you guys know Bernie Madoff, but Bernie Madoff was a man who was in Wall Street and he was legitimately making $100 million a year at, on his Wall Street stuff, just buying and selling stocks legitimately making $100 million a year, but that wasn't enough for him. So what he did is he started to tell people, hey, I've got this artificial intelligence that helps me decide which stocks to buy, and it's guaranteed a return. If you give me money, I'll give you a return. Well, he had tons of people just pouring money into this thing. But he didn't actually invest it. He just put it all into one big pool in his bank that he had access to. And whenever anyone wanted to pull out, he would just take money out of the pool and give it to the people who were wanting to sell out. So tens of billions of dollars ended up coming through this guy. And then 2008 happens and crashes, and then it's just gone. 
I was talking about it with uh, Mark Scudsad. You could say, I guess, I guess you could say he really made off. <laughs> this is a great line, right? Bernie made off. He really made off. No, but so sometimes we're so used to this idea that when someone is trying to tell us something, hey, this is really important. Hey, you got to do this. I feel like we're a little bit preconditioned to be like, ah, but what's in it for you? Like, how do I know I can really trust you? What are your credentials? What's your background? What, what does your life look like? And so for Paul, he's going to this church in Corinth. And a lot of them rejected Paul because they didn't like the way that he carried himself, the way that he spoke. He wasn't as loud as me, obviously. The way that he didn't have any money. He didn't have any finances. He didn't have, this man looked really unimportant to them. And so why should we trust you? Why, why should we listen to you? There's other people in town who are saying, oh, you're probably not the best guy to listen to. So maybe I'm going to listen to these people and not you, Paul. And so Paul is addressing a bit of that today. And he begins in this chapter, if you take a step back, the person who wrote the chapters and verses in the Bible, the Holy Spirit did not inspire inspire the original author Paul to say, now chapter six. So sometimes things get a little mixed up. That happened later when it was during the printing press, they could keep things in order. So we're going to take one verse back and start in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 tonight, and then hit chapter six. But Paul is saying, my life, my credentials are modeled after our king, that the life of a successful believer isn't going to look like the life of a successful person of this world necessarily. That if you're a successful follower of Jesus, it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to have tons of money and cars and access to food or, or, or not be beat up. Because you've got Paul who, when he shows up, he's dirty, his clothes are torn, and he's got a lot of bruises in a lot of places. And so he says, I model what it means to be successful off of this. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21. For our sake, he made him, God made Jesus, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Working together with him, then, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. So Paul is going to start this argument off about his credentials, his ability to be the, the guy to speak life and correction to this church by, first of all, talking about what, what does success look like for a believer? Well, it looks a lot like Jesus. Jesus is the God who knew no sin. He was in heaven. He, was, he had everything he could ever want. He did not need anything else, and yet he chose to leave heaven, get up off of his throne, leave comfort, leave eternity, to come and be born as a weak, defenseless baby in human form to a poor, impoverished family of bad reputation. And then he would be raised in that family, and he would be, end up being homeless and hungry and beaten and mocked and slandered and ultimately killed, taking on all of yours and my sin, literally embodying embodying your and my sin, that the one who knew no sin became sin. So he became all of your and my worst, all of it, cumulatively. Jesus became all of that so that you and I could become the righteousness of God. So maybe it's not about what I have or I don't have or how I look or what I sound like. Maybe it's about who I am because the work as Jesus has imbued upon me God's righteousness, not because of anything I've done, but because of everything Jesus has done. So Paul says that's where we start. 
That's where the conversation starts. And then working together with them, you and I need to be people who don't receive the grace of God in vain. Every single day, you and I will have opportunities to share that you and I have now been transformed by the work, the redeeming work of Jesus on the cross. Every single day, there are opportunities that God brings our way, and we often will let that grace go in vain. We don't act on it. We don't tell people. We don't open our mouths in the way that we know that we ought to. We don't talk to our spouse, our coworker, our friend, or even especially our enemies when we know that we should. We don't communicate the truth that has happened to you and me, the fact that we've been redeemed, the fact that we've been restored, the fact that we've been transformed by the work of Jesus. Well, that's the most important, if you're a believer, that's the most important core part of who you are. And it's the part that often gets put on the back burner. Paul says, no, you can't let that grace go in vain. For he says, verse two, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I've helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There's no better day than today to talk to that person about Jesus and what he has done in you and through you and for you. Verse three, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as, but as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance. And then verses four through five is gonna list a whole bunch of hardships that Paul has gone on through. So he's gonna say, here's my, my letter of commendation. Here's what shows you that I am the right person to bring correction to this church. Because that's really the thrust of chapters three through six is, hey, I'm the guy that God has sent here to bring correction, to, to bring three through seven, to bring correction, to bring this church back the way that it ought to be. And here's the letter of commendation. Here's all the things that can prove that I'm the right guy for it. And he says, his first thing is endurance. What is endurance? Endurance is something you get by doing something that's hard and it kind of wears you out, but you recover and then you do that hard thing again and it wears you out a little bit less. So Matt Heverly's wife, her name is Charity. She, for fun, runs marathons, which sounds awful. <laughs> that is like the least fun. Hey, what do you want to do this weekend? I want to go for like a run. How far? Just like forever. You know, like that's crazy. That doesn't sound fun to me. But what happened is one day she decided I'm going to go for a run for this distance. And man, that was tiring and it kind of winded her. And then she did that over and over again to where that run became more manageable. That became easier. Her body knew what to expect, knew how to navigate through that, knew what's coming next, when, what to expect out of it. And now she's got endurance to run. She can run marathons really well and place really well because she's built up this endurance. Paul says, I've got endurance. He'll say in uh, Romans, Five, three through nine. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Paul's about to list in his commendations all these sufferings and hardships that he has. And here's why he says, knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. So when hard, when difficult seasons come, and they do come for every single person, you can either let that crush you, 
be rolled over by it, be hit by it, or you can navigate through it knowing this is going to produce in me something that's going to cause me to be stronger, cause me to be more faithful, cause me to trust in God in a way that previously I didn't or couldn't. You'll be able to go through it saying, I can rest assured God is going to get me through this. There's going to be rest. And there's going to be good things to come because I've seen God work before. That's what endurance is. When hard times come, you'll be able to say, I've seen God work before. I know he's going to get me through this. And Paul says endurance, once you have that, it builds in you character. That character is shown through inward traits like honesty and, and um, responsibility. And what we'll see with Paul is this courage to face crazy hard situations with just... <laughs> when he's got this crazy opposition against him, like Paul will be about to be murdered. And what he'll say is, hey, great, if you kill me, Things only get better for me. Like, that's his attitude about everything. That he'll, he's able to be honest even when it's really, really hard. He's able to stand up for what is right even when no one else is going to stand up with him when he's standing alone because he's become a man of character. I know that I don't have to lie and to steal and to cheat in order to get my way. I know I can trust in my God, so I'm not going to do those things. I could be a man of honesty and responsibility and integrity because I know who my God is. And he's going to provide. He has provided, and I'm going to continue to trust in that. So endurance brings you character, and character ultimately leads to hope. Jesus is the God of all hope. And he can do exceedingly, abundantly above anything we could ever ask or think. Think about what that verse is saying. I talk to my kids about what they hope for. They hope for really big things. Your kids just hope for really big things. And then as you become older, you hope for less and less big things. Because you start to get just hit by life, and it doles you, I think, a little bit. And you, you, um, my dad said our family motto is keep your expectations reasonable. It's a pretty good family motto. But Jesus says, no, I'm the God of all hope. That's not my family's motto, that he can do exceedingly abundantly above anything we could ask or think. And so if you and I actually take that and hold on to that, aren't you able to, okay, man, this is really hard right now. This is really difficult right now. But I've seen God come through for me in the past. I know that he's going to provide. There's going to be a way out of this. There's going to be a, a time of rest and peace and calm, even though right now things are chaotic and dark and difficult, and I don't know why this is happening. I can hope that God is going to do something brilliant through this, that we can trust that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose, that when things are just crazy hard and you go, why did that happen? That just seems so evil. It seems so wrong. It seems like such a, a terrible thing that has happened accident. God does not say most things work out for good or uh, quite a few things work out for good. It's all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. And so you and I, as you're walking with the Lord, what you'll find is you'll be able to become, become people who have endurance in the face of real difficulty and tragedy and hardship. It will cause you and I to follow God with character. We could ha have integrity. We could be Stand up for what is true and what is right, knowing even if I lose opportunities, my God is always going to provide for me. And we become people of hope, knowing oh, my God's really in control. I can really trust my God. 
And so Paul tells us how he gained this endurance. The verse continues by says, in afflictions, hardships, calamities, verse five, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. How many people want to sign up for that program right now that he's on? It sounds like he's a brand new parent, doesn't he? I was looking over that list. Okay, so we've got imprisonment. Okay, there we are. Uh, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, hardship, calamity. I've, I've got a six-month-old at home. This just sounds like daily life a little bit. No, Paul is saying, yeah, I look the way that I look because I've, these are the things that I've gone through, that I've experienced, that have built up in me endurance and character and hope that is produced in me. It's the, my letter of commendation that I know that I'm doing what God has called me to do because lots of people want me to stop. That's what Paul is saying. I keep trying, like I keep getting beaten and I keep standing back up. There, I love that word, there's riots. It's a poor translation because it's literally, there were angry mobs. That's the idea. There are angry mobs that have come after Paul and thrown him out of town or beaten him or stoned him or treated him poorly. He's saying, this is my letter of commendation. This is how you can know I'm the right guy to be talking to your church. These are the things I've experienced. But then he follows those sufferings up with a series of graces that he's experienced. So by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, truthful speech, and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left. There's some people, when they go through hardship and suffering and difficulty, it can cause them to become a sour and bitter person, a hard person in the way they talk to others, hearted of heart. They become rough. They become irritable. They become quickly frustrated. And what you see in Paul is, how did Paul come through those beatings and through hunger and through sleepless nights and through labors and through working and through being beaten and mocked and thrown out? How does he come out through through that? He comes out with purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, Holy Spirit, genuine love. How do you get any of that when you're being mistreated, when you're being beaten, when you're being mocked, when you're being slandered? Because you and I are supposed to think of our king who was mistreated, mocked, slandered, and beaten. If they did it to Jesus, they're going to do it to you. If you're standing up for what is true and what is right and what is pure, if we're pushing forward the things of God, the other kingdom is going to want to push against it. And don't expect the world to treat you better than they treat your king. In verse 8, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters and yet are true. So hold on. You're telling me that there was this dude who was born in Bethlehem, who was raised in the small town of Nazareth, which has like, what, 70 people in it? And that guy then got 12 of his buddies who were fishermen and tax collectors and just rowdy dudes. And then he went to a wedding that we all heard about that had more wine than you had to deal with, that, that wedding. And then he went and just traveled around and then Pilate got a hold of him 
and the priests that we all trust got a hold of him and they killed that guy. You're telling me that that's God? And because they killed him, I'm forgiven? That sounds like imposter. That sounds like it's crazy. That sounds like it's nonsense. And Paul is saying, it makes us sound like it's, we're imposters, but true. He's going to take all these, it makes me sound this way. It makes me look this way. It makes it seem like it's one thing, but it's the opposite. The world says, hey, that's foolish. And God says, yeah, it's going to confound the wise. Hey, that's weak. Yeah, it's going to confound the strong. What God has done doesn't make sense to people who say, man, I've got to do something to earn my own way. I've got to prove it to God. I've got to become something. God says, no, I've already done the work. All you need to do is rest in the fact that I've come and I've purchased you, redeemed you, and set you free from that. As unknown and yet well-known, think about who Paul was. Paul was on the road to greatness as far as his career was concerned. All the high priests knew about Saul from Tarsus. He had a name. He was a dependable guy. You could send him into a place with soldiers and resources, and he'll come back with what you needed. He was making a real name for himself. He was the kind of guy that the families who had been raising kids around him would go, oh, I hope our kids end up just like Saul. He's such a godly man, such a good man. He knows his Bible really, really, really well. And he's dependable, can be trusted on. He's, he's becoming a guy that everyone turns to and respects. You know that because when they stone Stephen, all the men turn and they take their robes and throw them at Saul's feet. He is someone who can tell people what they can, should, and should not do. And now he was someone who was known. Now he's someone who is unknown. God takes that name away from him. No, you're not going to be Saul from Tarsus anymore. You're going to be Paul. And you're going to be my wandering servant that goes and starts churches and goes to the next place and starts churches. And you're going to be the, the number one missionary in the whole world, writing a good chunk of the best-selling book that will ever happen. And you're going to go around, you're going to teach and preach and be beaten and be thrown out and cast off until ultimately they chop your head off. That's who Saul is. So Saul says, someone unknown and yet well-known, because here's what he's seen. He used to spend his life seeking the approval of people. How many people can I get to know me? How many people can I get to know about me, to want to meet me? And what he found is that thing that his soul was always longing for and searching for and desiring, he's found it. He's well-known that the creator and the sustainer of the universe has decided that he wants to have a personal, intimate relationship with him. That's, that's for you and for me, that we not only get to know about God, but you and I get to know God as a friend who's closer than a brother. That in us, we all have these desires that are really, really good that we misplace. Like we have a desire, uh, what's his name? He's a huge guy. Um, Kurt Cobain. That's the guitar part. Kurt Cobain. Kurt Cobain, he was the singer of Nirvana, and he always had this desire, just want to be known. I just want people to know who I am. And dude, he got that. He had the Midas touch. Every single song that he wrote, pen to paper, became a number one bestseller, just top of the chart. And eventually he decides, this is not what I want. This thing I thought I wanted is horrible. 
It just, he kept thinking, if maybe if I just get a little more fame, a little more attention, a little more accolade, a few more awards, one more bestseller, then I'll finally be happy. What he found is it didn't. And finally, having hold that thing that he thought would give him all the life he was longing for, it killed him. For you and me, Paul is saying that's acceptable. That's, that's found. That's only given to you and me through Jesus. He's going to be the thing that your soul has been longing for, desiring for. You've been looking for in all of these other areas, but you can know it. You can have it in Christ. So it's unknown, and yet we're will, we are well known. As dying, and yet behold, we live. The most scary, frightening, final obstacle in the life of people who do not know Jesus is death. There's nothing more final. There's nothing more scary. For one of the creators of Google, his name is Larry Page. He's spending millions on millions on millions of dollars on a program to make it so that he won't die. That's the goal. We're going to beat death. We're going to figure out a way to extend my life as long as possible because once you die, man, it's done. Hey, you've built one of the most successful businesses that's ever been on the history of the face of the earth. You have more money than you ever know what to do with. I mean, Google literally bought YouTube because their bankers told them, hey, the bank doesn't want any more of your money. They have no place to store it. You need to start investing money and spending money. That's why they bought YouTube. They're a company that literally just trying to figure out things to do with all their money. You have the man who's in charge of that going, I got to do whatever I can to extend my life because once I die, it's, it's over. It's gone. It's done. For the believer, you and I know that death has been swallowed up in victory, that that once impossible obstacle is finished. It's overcome. It's not a problem for you and me. It's not something that you and I ever need to be worried about or afraid of. That the, in fact, the attitude you and I should have is the attitude that Paul has when he's threatened with death. Are you going to bring me glory? You're going to bring me the best thing I could ever experience? Are you kidding me? Someone was sharing with me right before I came up here that a few weeks ago, someone was talking about their dad who had passed away. And the way that she explained to the church that her dad had passed away is, my dad is having the best day ever. That's it. His death is not a, oh man, that's the end. It's black, it's over, it's terrible. It's, no, this is victory. And if death is victory, there's nothing left in life that I have to be afraid of anymore. What's the worst thing someone could do to you? Kill you? Oh, okay. Game on, dude. Like, I'm tired of paying taxes anyway, you know? Give me before April 15th. No, he's saying... We're dying, yet we live. My life right now, according to the world standards, I'm on the decline, I'm going down, and according to God's standards is glory upon greater glory. Well done, good and faithful servant, don't grow weary. As punished, and yet not killed. As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. That is a thing that only a believer in Jesus can have a peace that passes understanding, a joy that even follows you in the midst of really intense sorrow and hardship that nothing in this world could ever give you or explain. That when there's real pain, real tragedy, you can be rejoicing because you know, oh, my God is going to make all things new. That everything evil that has happened in this world, he will make untrue. One of my favorite scenes in Lord of the Rings, 
and they took it out of the movie, which is such a crime. But in the book, the last book, you have Sam and Frodo. They saw their friend Gandalf die to this Balrog, which is a scary underground demonic thing. And it takes Gandalf down into the, just the pit and they see their friend die that way. And they don't see him since. They don't know that he has returned. And so they go to Mordor, they cast the ring into the, the, the volcano. And when Sam and Frodo wake up, after they've been brought back to where the elves live, Sam looks at Gandalf and he says, is it really you? Is everything evil coming untrue? That's, it's the most brilliant line because that's what's gonna happen for you and me. When you and I get into eternity and we see Jesus, he's not gonna show you how he made all those terrible things that happened better. He's not gonna show you how he made them all right. He's not gonna look at the, the area on my leg where I've got screws and, and metal and show me that, this, look at the scars all better. It bends normal. It's, when it gets cold outside, it's not gonna give you aches anymore. He's gonna show me how it's like it, was, it never happened that that thing isn't true anymore, that Jesus will make everything evil untrue. That's the kind of hope that you and I have so that when sorrow comes, we can be always rejoicing. Poor, yet making many rich. I was talking to someone about the high school group, how we make food for the high schoolers on Thursday night. And so this is how I got into the conversation. It was with my sister. I said, hey, sis, how you doing? She goes, good, what's going on? I said, hey, you know how Jesus says that if you give a cup of water to a kid, that he'll remember it forever? She goes, what do you want? <laughs> we have the kind of God who pays back over and above the investment that we give him. Think about how crazy of a statement that is. He's going to recall every time you give a glass of water to a kid. He's gonna recall every single time you give a, a cup of goldfish to a kid. He's gonna remember, if he remembers that, he's gonna remember every single time you sit and talk to a child about Jesus, about their king, about their God, and as their friend. He's gonna remember all of those things and repay back to you way more than you could ever expect. Press down, running over. Poor, yet making many rich. As having nothing, yet possessing everything. Paul has no material possessions. Paul has, often, has also often many times rejected people's monetary gifts towards him. If it, has become, if it seemed like it would become a stumbling block, he would not take it. He literally has nothing, yet he says, I possess everything. What could he be talking about? I think he's talking about something that is fresh on his mind. He brings it up in 2 Corinthians 5. You and I are heirs with Christ. We're his ambassadors, that we're from a kingdom that is not here to represent his kingdom, but ultimately in our pocket, we have the keys to that kingdom. That we have untold access to the kingdom of God that no one else has. That I might not have no worldly possessions. I might not have any money. I might not have a home to go put my, to go rest in. I might not have a pillow to put my head on but I have the keys to the kingdom of God that's been given to me by the work of Jesus. And so what does this world possibly have to offer me that can compete with that, that can compare to that, that could make me go, oh man, I just wish that I had that instead. Paul's saying, no way, I might not have, it. I might not have anything by worldly standards, but I possess everything. If we have that kind of attitude, it's much harder for us to get envious and bitter 
and frustrated when we see people take extravagant vacations or get that nice new toy, that nice new thing, it's much more difficult for us to become envious people if we're constantly being reminded of, dude, I've got the keys of the kingdom coming my way. My favorite illustration for this is I used to work at Dairy Queen on the north end of town. And if the owner of Dairy Queen came in and said, hey, if you can make it here five years, I'll give you a $100 million check. And then my buddy, he decided to work there at the same time as me. He didn't get that promise. Which one of us is going to be willing to put up with the longer shifts and the more irate customers and staying late? Dude, me. In five years, I've got a $100 million check coming my way. You can throw that shake in my face. I don't care. I will, and I'll clean it up after. Like, I'm going to be here. That's Paul's attitude. I may possess nothing, but I've got everything. I've got the $100 million check coming my way. I can put up with some stuff for right now. I can have this bad attitude coming my way. That's no problem. Man, what if you and I actually had that attitude going into work or how we talk to our spouse when things get frustrating, how we talk to our kids, to our neighbors, if we actually treated life like, I've got the $100 million check coming my way. I think we'd be much more patient, even-keeled people than we are right now. I think in this consumer culture that we live in, this might be something we need to think on daily. In verse 11, he says, we have spoken freely to you. Corinthians, our heart is wide open. You're not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. In return, I speak as to children, widen your hearts also. And so there's people who have been in conflict with Paul. And he's saying, all I want in return is a fair exchange. Just my love for your love. I'm not wanting your money. I'm not wanting whatever you think might be my motive, all I'm wanting is love for love. That's the whole mission. That's the whole desire. That's the whole movement of the church. My love for your love. And so Paul's suffering, all of those things that he put down as his commendations for why he's the right guy. He's saying, my suffering is the vehicle through which God is going to make himself known to you. That God is going to make himself known to the Corinthians through Paul's suffering. It's the vehicle through which God is going to move. I think there's so many times in our lives when we have gone through some really difficult, hard things, and we just go, God, why is this happening to me? And there doesn't seem to be like a really good answer right then. Somewhere down the line, I believe you're going to have someone who comes into your sphere of influence who is going through the exact same thing. And that suffering that you went through is the vehicle that God can use to then put himself in their life. Because you could say, hey, you know what? I went through that exact same thing. You know what really helped me? You know what got me through it? You know what hope I had to set my eyes on in order to keep myself going every single day? And it will open up an opportunity to speak life into that person you wouldn't otherwise have. That God can work all things together for good, even the suffering, the tragedy, the hard stuff in our lives. He can use them as vehicles through which God makes himself known. In verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? So this idea of being unequally yoked is... What a farmer would do to tend to his field is he would get two oxen or two horses and he'd put this thing on them that was the yoke. 
It would connect the two of them and they would push forward and t- either pull a whole bunch of stuff or, or till the field behind them. And that was the process that farmers used. And they always knew you wouldn't have two unequal animals t- yoked together. You wouldn't have a bull and a horse because one of those creatures is gonna overpower the other and cause it to become either drugged and killed or completely just useless and pulled around and overpowered and the field never gets tilled the way it needs to get tilled and you've lost a whole day's work and possibly injured one of your animals. Paul is saying, don't put yourself in that kind of situation. That There will often be situations in life that seems like this is a really, really good idea. But if first and foremost, your spiritual compatibility is off, you're gonna be seeing the world differently. When I was in high school, I was in a band. And just like any high schooler, I knew this band was going places. You know, like, this is, this is the ticket out of here. <clears throat> and it was me, the drummer, and the bass player who were all Christians, all working in churches. And we had this other guitar player, and he, was, he sang a bit, and uh, he was not a believer. And we're like, well, that's no problem. You know, we're just making music together. We're just loving music. We're having a great time. And we're playing a song, and we're really liking the song that he's singing, kind of making it up, writing. And we're like, yeah, hey, what are you singing about? And he shows us. And the lyrics were something along the lines of, uh, there is no light, there is no hope, God is dead. And we're just like, I can't, I can't sing that. I go, no, 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 I'm going to sing it. No, no, no. I'm not going to play that song. No, but you liked it. I'm not going to play that song. And it, it broke up the band. Like that, because it was just, man, we can't do this together. If that's the stuff you want to sing about, I can't do it. I just, I cannot be a part of that. That My heart isn't there. Uh, I'll struggle with it. Every, I, can't even, I can't even play the guitar to that kind of song. Won't do it. Don't be unequally yoked. And there's all these contrasts that he puts there. Who's got, what partnership is there with righteousness and lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? It's these mutually exclusive ideas. In uh, Klamath Falls, they've got these tunnels. They're big lava tunnels that have been carved. They're so cool. If you've never been there, they're two hours from here and they're the coolest thing. And you can crawl into spaces where there's literally zero light. And the little flashlight on your phone becomes so bright. It just, all the darkness just flees. And all of a sudden your eyes are just like, oh, thank goodness there's brightness in here. And when you turn off the light, it is seriously so dark. It's mutually exclusive ideas. What, what fellowship has light with darkness? They're mutually exclusive. They can't hang out with one another. The next one, which is the interesting one, the one that sticks out is what accord has Christ with Belial? And so what is Belial? It could be a local legend name or maybe a temple god that's nearby. Like it could be cultural, you know, like what accord has Christ with Thanos? You would say none, you know, like it could be like that. Or it could just be a a synonym for the accuser, for Satan. But it's that idea. It's, It's the opposite of Christ. It's what accord has Christ with the opposite of Christ. You've got a king, you've got a master, you've got a God that you've decided to give your life to. What accord does he have with that stuff? Don't be participating in that stuff. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them, and I will be their God and they shall be my people. 
Therefore, go out from their midst and be separate from them, says the Lord, and touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you and I will be a father to you and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. So Paul is just picking from scripture right now. You're just seeing how brilliant his mind is when it comes to scripture. He's quoting parts from Leviticus, from Ezekiel, from Jeremiah, from 2 Samuel. He's taken all of these parts that all in one way or another say we are redeemed, reclaimed people, people who were exiled, who were a part of Babylon, who were part of a culture that was not true, not right, impure, and now you've been brought out from it that we need to go out from their midst and be separate from them. You're no longer in Babylon. Stop acting like it. That's really the thrust for the Corinthians because they're in this culture that is so, hey, if you're hungry, eat. If you're thirsty, drink. If you're feeling sexy, then sex. Like that's the attitude. That's the, the entire thrust of the culture. And he's saying, stop acting and looking like Babylonians. This has been God's will for his people since he's claimed people as his own. We need to start, stop acting like we're in darkness if we're going to call ourselves light. We need to stop acting like unbelievers if we're going to call ourselves believers. We need to go out from their midst and separate from them. Don't be unequally yoked because we're held to a higher standard that doesn't make sense to people who are not in that kingdom. God wants more from you and God wants more for you. And so this chapter, the whole point of it that Paul is making is I've been through some really, really, really hard things. And that's not because I've lived life badly or God is upset with me or God is punishing me. It's that suffering comes and the way that I've faced it has caused me to become a more patient, kind, and loving human being. And out of the love of God that moves me forward, I want to reconcile with you even when you've been cruel and rejected me. And that's the attitude that every believer is supposed to carry through our lives. There will always be people who will reject, who will hurt, who will turn their back on us. And the love of God is supposed to compel us forward in the ministry of reconciliation to show them kindness and love, even when they cause us sorrow and tragedy. Nope, God's going to get me through this. I know that God is going to provide, and I've got hope that he's going to come through for me in the future. So Jesus, I pray that as suffering, as hardship comes, that we would actually get to see lived out in us endurance being built up, character unfolding, and hope restored in us as we look forward each and every day to how you're gonna make all things new and everything that has been evil and wrong and unjust untrue. Jesus, help us to be kind, help us to be patient, help us to be gentle with those who are hurting and because they're hurting, they hurt us and they hurt others. Help us to be a light in a dark place. Help us to be the kind of church that the gates of hell cannot stand against. It's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you guys.